John, you're back with me again. Hey, good to be back. How are things? Good. I think it was our critical thinking episode where we last podcasted together. Yeah, yeah, it was. And uh, I see a lot of uh, interconnections between that and today's subject. And today we're going to be talking about learning organizations. Before we go into that topic, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? I don't know if we did that in the previous episode, and I've received recent feedback that our listeners like to hear a little bit about us, where we're coming from, our background. Sure. Uh, I am John Kotzman. I am a facilitator here at the Army Management Staff College. Uh, I taught at the uh, basic course here at the Army Management Staff College for a number of years, and now I'm currently teaching in the intermediate course. Prior to that, I was an administrator in the VA And one of my duties were updating our lessons and our curriculum that we teach the employees in the VA. Uh, Prior to that, I was with the School of Advanced Leadership and Tactics, which was one of the many colleges under the Army University's umbrella. And prior to that, I taught at the Command General Staff College. So I've been around a little bit. You were uh, a transportation officer at one point? I was a transportation officer, yes. Lieutenant Colonel, transportation officer. Well, let's talk about learning organizations. Sure. And just right off the bat, let's just break down the word. Because for me, I think it's one of those words that's overused a lot. I always hear, well, we're a learning organization. You're not a learning organization. Without really having a shared understanding of what a learning organization is or what it implies. Or do you think it's pretty intuitive? Is it as simple as an organization that learns? No, I, I totally agree with you. And I've wrestled with this question myself because I guess I – started to break it down between the art and science because it's not really an easily definable thing. I agree because there's some vision involved and there's also, you know, some practical, tangible stuff that you got to do to have a learning organization. So I guess if I could sum it up, uh, for me, a learning organization is one, you know, it's going to encourage a lot of free thinking, critical thinking. It's going to encourage people to the old cliche out of the box thinking, but that's really, it's more along the lines of, I will appreciate, find new appreciation for opposing points of view, for world points of view, for unorthodox ideas, for taking time to do these things to do better. Formal leaders would believe, you know, if I just articulate a good vision, I put out what I want to get done, you know, give some right incentives, and I provide feedback that, gosh, I must be a learning organization. But that's really not a learning organization. Army Doctrine, ADRP 622, in, uh, let's see, Chapter 7, it talks about learning organizations. And let's see, it has three bullets. uh, Adopt new techniques and procedures that complete jobs more efficiently and effectively. Number two, they discard techniques and procedures that have outlived their purpose. And three, create a climate that values learning and its members. Peter Senge, we can't talk about the term learning organizations without talking about the author, Peter Senge, who wrote the book, The Fifth Discipline, back in the mid-90s. And you know what he, from his standpoint, he says, jettison the jargon, it's people working at their best. Nothing more, nothing less. People working at their best. If people are working at their best in an organization, the learning will happen. The organization will stay relevant. It will change with the environment as it needs to. Just If you can look at it as people working at their best, and what are those five disciplines to get people to work at their best in order for an organization to stay relevant to its environment? Then I'd respond, well, in the Army Management Staff College, it's only the intermediate course that teaches a lesson on learning organizations. You won't find that in the basic course or the advanced course. And I'm a fan of what we have in some of the big takeaways I, I've seen are 
people are quick to put out a vision but not very prescriptive on what they're looking for. And it's a delicate balance. You have to have the formal top of the organization shape the culture. How often have we talked or visited this this subject? But and you know that's that's a tough thing to define because culture is like air. You know, you can't really touch it, but you want your top managers, you want your your leadership to foster that environment, that culture, but you want to pin the rows more at the lower level managers to actually come up with their tangible, actionable, prescriptive, dare I say a checklist, dare I say milestones and objectives. Just like anything else when you're developing a process, it's the same approach. I think failures in the past are people get the wrong impression that this is something that must be top-down driven. I would argue it needs to be the top has to support it and set the culture. You know, I'm going to pull you aside, James, and say, look, let's have a conversation. If you work for me, I'm going to encourage debate. I'm going to encourage you to come up with ideas that oppose my own. Make that known that this is what I'm encouraging. You know, I don't want to judge you on solely how much work you get done or how much tasks you complete, but I also value you as a person slowing down, using some critical thinking, using some analysis, and helping me find new and better ways to get after the business of what we do. You know, John, one of the biggest things I see getting in the way of an organization performing at its best is the concept of control. When it comes to control, we can mitigate risk. We can increase predictability. There are lots of things that we can do that help us in the in the short term. The problem that I see is with high control, we tend to create a culture that stifles learning. We don't allow people to make mistakes and learn from those. Our risk does go up uh, with lower control, but our learning goes down. So I think it's up to leaders to find what that right what that sweet spot is for balancing control and risk with with learning. That's absolutely true. I mean, I think it goes. Think of the analogy that we talk about a lot, you know, in the critical thinking class and other classes and the feedback classes, we talk about supportive and corrective feedback instead of positive or negative feedback. I mean, those are huge differences. Corrective and supportive are much different words. It's a new nuance. It's like removing the threatening words from a conversation. And this is, um, this is a tough concept for some folks at the top. And it's tough to let go of that control because you need to meet deadlines. In the real world, deadlines are part of the deliverable. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's a huge risk. It's, it's hard mentally to let go of some things. But, you know, to have an appreciation of differences, uh, to be open to new ideas, to absolutely encourage time for reflection, this is huge and it, it's hard and it's like you say, it's... Um, but if I'm encouraging people to come up with new ideas, think outside the box, encourage time for reflection, boy, uh, from a person from a management mindset, that, that's going to cause me some stress because I've got the processes streamlined. I've got, I've got budgets I've got to deal with. I've got, I've got labor hours that I need to ensure are being optimized. And when people are working on special projects or coming up with new and quote unquote better ways to do things, um, I'm assuming risk. Absolutely, because I'm asking you to be a leader and not necessarily a manager. I mean, that's one of the big themes from Singh's book, 
Your sustainable competitive advantage is your ability to learn faster than your competitor. And how that translates in the Army is, look, we have to be thinking better, faster, and more creatively to more and more complex problems in a complex world. And that isn't just with soldiers. That's also for us as we as Army civilians. And that's part of our profession. And that's why the Army, as you pointed out, you know, we support this idea in our doctrine. ADRP 6-22 on leadership is encouraging these things. But I agree, it's tough to let go, and it's tough to go with that kind of a flow in a work environment where deadlines are real and budgets are real and things are pressing. John, do you see any linkages between the mission command philosophy and learning organizations? Oh, absolutely. Like having just mentioned this whole concept of balancing control. Yes, we need to have the right amount of control, but too much control stifles learning. Uh, yes, we can reduce risk, but when we look at mission command, it's all about encouraging others to come up with their own ways to accomplish a task. Yes, we assume some risk in doing, but we also develop others and increase learning. I think it speaks directly to builds teams. Mission command requires us to build teams. That's part of the mission command philosophy. And if you're going to build teams, if you're going to build trust, there has to be that element of trust where you trust so much that you're going to let go of control a little bit and be a leader, vice a manager. Now, do you want to talk about the five disciplines that Peter Senge talks about in his book, The Fifth Discipline? Sure. Let's go through them real quick. Um, the, real, let's just run through the list of what those five are. We'll talk about each individual one and break it down a little bit. But it's personal mastery, shared vision, mental models, team learning, and systems thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Let's start real quick with personal mastery. John, what does personal mastery mean to you, and how does it contribute to an organization being a learning organization? Well, to, I guess for me, is to see reality objectively is probably very tough for most people. I mean, let's just be real. Even in critical thinking, the old adage of I have to think about thinking while I'm thinking with a goal towards improving my thinking. It's very easy to fall in a sociocentric, egocentric mindset and not be open to new ideas or having full appreciation of opposing views or new ideas. So certainly critical thinking development can be a, a part of personal mastery and as we gain experiences. And what are your thoughts when it comes to our own self-development programs, though? We look at our IDP, we set these goals, short-term and long-term goals. Sure. Sure. I think it's easy to become lethargic. I think it's easy to be a check-the-block person and not give that the full deep dive that it deserves. And we don't take advantage of what the Army is asking us to do. And if you look at it, it's all to our own advantage. Where do I want to see myself in five years, in 10 years? What are some things that I want to achieve? And once I've identified those, I will backward plan them and see if they're achievable, suitable, acceptable for me, for myself. I mean, IDPs are something we should probably... The individual development plans? Yes, IDPs. It takes a person who values their own development to put together an IDP that's that's worth a darn. True. A lot of people do it as a check the block. It is an AR 350-1 requirement for all of us that are part of the profession. That's right. Your IDP can be a huge component of this element of personal mastery. You know, John, you and I have, through our careers, have heard plenty of people say, oh, yeah, well, I've got 20 years experience doing this. We've heard it, but is all 20 years experience equal? For instance, there are people who have 20 years of experience of being promoted, going through the grades, 
and taking on new and varying challenges throughout their career. And there are people that took a job. It took about a year to learn it. And they're still doing it 20 years later. And I would say that's rather than 20 years of experience, that's one year of experience 20 times. There's something to be said for that. But even the person, I believe, with the greatest of, shall we say, latitude in his experiences is still just a prisoner of those experiences. If I just look at myself, I spent my time in the Army in the Transportation Corps. It's very fair to say I have a very logistics focus on my view of how the Army should run and how we should do things. My priorities aren't going to be the same as, say, yourself as a helicopter pilot or somebody else in the intelligence world. I have to be honest with myself and know I have some very sociocentric ideas of what right looks like with regard to how operations should flow. I'll go straight to logistics concerns. and um, Well, that comes back to your first point that I'm seeing uh, reality objectively. The more varied I think our experiences are, the less trapped by a myopic focus we tend to be. And so those broadening experiences can certainly help open our aperture into helping us see the environment objectively. I also can't help talking about personal mastery without talking about expertise as well. And John, quick question on the spot here. How many hours does it take to become an expert in something? Huh. No, I, I do not know. Our listeners out there who are Malcolm Gladwell fans are thinking, oh, yeah, I know this. 10,000 hours. There have been some challenges, some responses to the 10,000-hour notion that, that Malcolm Gladwell had, uh, had posted. But, but what's interesting, though, for an, a person who works 40 hours a week, there's roughly 2,000 hours in a year. So that would be the equivalent of five years five of years. working nine to five, 40 hours a week to become a master in something, to develop mastery, whether we're looking at a musical instrument or, or we're looking at expertise anyway. Now, what's interesting is this isn't a linear path as they've done the studies on these. It's not uh, as you look at, let's say, a graph and on the bottom of the graph, you've got zero hours to 10,000 hours. And on the vertical graph, you've got novice up to expert. It's not this 45-degree angle that, that goes up toward expert as we approach 10,000 hours. It's a curve. It's very be a steep curve in the beginning of it. So we can do most of our learning. Most of our learning happens on the front end of, of, the, of that curve. A lot can be learned in a relatively short amount of time. And I think it's an interesting, interesting point. When you look at the difference between somebody who has 5,000 hours and somebody who has 10,000 hours, there's not a huge difference typically, especially when it comes to musical performance and, sure. and, and such. Um and the reason why I bring that up is that it can be daunting to think of that where really you'd be surprised at how many, what kind of strides could be made in a relatively short amount of time with the right amount of focus and dedication on something. You could really take advantage of that, that front end of the curve and, and get to a path toward expertise in a relatively short amount of time. Let's talk about the second, talk about the second discipline, which is shared vision. And shared vision, I see that correlating very much so with mission command philosophy. Yeah, it's your vision statement. It's it's the what. It's that vision statement that gives us all a basically a goal on the horizon to get us all rowing in the same direction. Where are we going? And I would argue it's not something that you expect to necessarily achieve. It's it's the direction that we're going. And I think you, sh I think it's wise to actually revise and update your vision periodically as well as the environment changes. Where are we going with this organization? Though that that vision that is our that is the the star on the horizon where we've aimed the ship, and that needs to sometimes be updated and refined, but it needs to be communicated and understood, I think, by, by all. Yeah, it's it's a way to frame what what is being asked of us. You know, the leadership has a vision. 
And if I can read it and understand it, then I understand my environment and it gives me my left and right guidelines to go forth and meet my commander's intent. But it establishes our purpose, why we exist. Absolutely. And Simon Sinek talks a lot about that in his leadership speeches. I encourage listeners to, to look at Simon Sinek, his why speech. All right, let's talk about the uh, the third discipline, mental models. John, what is a mental model? I think a mental model is how you see the world. Uh, the older you get, the more experiences you accumulate, and you make a mental model of what you see the how the world is. You may have a mental model of what an instructor will do with you in a class. You can have a mental model of how a police officer will treat you. There's countless mental models. You know, I go to see the Kansas City Chiefs play football. I know Mahomes is going to be the best quarterback ever, and that's my mental model of Mahomes and Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah, I see mental models as, as mental shortcuts to help us make sense of a world that is complex. And they can be helpful, but they can also be limiting if we aren't aware of them. Um, my mental models can help me in expediting decision-making and or making sense of what I see. We require them every day. We have, I have mental models on the way Americans drive versus the rules of the road in Germany versus, oh boy, the rules of the road in Italy. Very different. And But according to my mental model and my experiences, one of them is more right than the other. Absolutely. Uh, yes. Yeah. But it can help me in, in my decision-making but it's, it kind of incorporates a lot of prejudice and my own biases and sure. my based on my experiences through life. Yeah, you had mentioned how I see law enforcement. Based on my experiences in the past, I may see law enforcement through a very positive light or I may see it in a less than positive light. Absolutely. And Peter Senge's book, he talks specifically about the mental models getting in the way of the Detroit automakers in the late 70s, early 80s when they were being rivaled with new imports, new fuel-efficient reliable imports and they laughed because they if you looked through the 50s and 60s and even you know the early 70s what americans really wanted was style john they wanted style they wanted power and they didn't care necessarily about fuel efficiency they didn't care about these little ugly cars that were being imported they laughed at those they laughed and now who's laughing yeah, nobody cared about gas mileage. Just show me those tail fins. Uh, yes, they want big fins. Yes, spinners. And yeah, if you look now, yeah, who's laughing now? The imports or, or the Detroit automakers. It's So mental models can be limiting in that sense too. So it, really the point is with mental models to be aware. Are your mental models helping or are they hindering? Are they limiting you? Because what happened in the past isn't necessarily what's going to happen in the future. What, what got you here isn't necessarily going to get you there. And there's a book called that too as well. Yeah, that's what gets in our way is, you know, we don't have an appreciation for opposing points of view or for new ideas or for anything that isn't in our mental model. And the fourth of the fifth disciplines, the team learning discipline. Team learning, John, you had mentioned it a little bit too in talking about teams. Tell me a little bit more on, on this concept of how teams contribute to uh, learning organizations. Well, I think the toughest part is when you do this the way it's intended is as a team member, I have to suspend my idea of what right looks like, listen for an intent to understand before I judge, and take the time to really reflect and do my research before I give a discouraging word to my colleague who may come up with these things. And that's what's tough, and that's part of the discipline. Suspend judgment. Listen to ideas all the way through. It doesn't matter if they're unorthodox. 
if the person is giving a genuine pitch, we need to give them the benefit of the doubt and, and look at it. Because at the end of the day, just because I'm not familiar with it, guess what? It may be a great idea. One of the principles of Mission Command is to build cohesive teams through mutual trust. Is it the same as this team learning concept that Peter Senge is pitching? I think it complements each other. I think they go together. I think both descriptions go under the same heading. Yeah, and I think from Peter Senge's point of view, too, in the book, that really when you have collaboration and synergy, you can get a one plus one equals three. You can get a greater output than just the sum of the collective individuals. Yeah, collaborative joint solutions are always going to be better in the long run. They just are because you have a group of people coming up with solid sound ideas and concepts going forward, vice, just relying on one person. And the fifth discipline from the book, the fifth discipline is systems thinking. We just recently talked about this too in our Army Design Methodology uh, episode, a couple episodes ago. And it's this ability to see the whole, to see the interconnectivity of things. The Army has some specific definitions and words that describe uh, systems thinking. What was interesting, I thought, in the book, The Fifth Discipline, Peter Senge seemed to approach it more from what we would describe as point of view in our critical thinking. He uses the example, if something's not going my way or the other department, the other organization didn't follow through on something, is my immediate assumption that they're out to do me in versus am I able to pause and put myself in their place? from their vantage point and assume that they're doing the best they can. So that's a little different than how the Army describes system thinking. I don't, what are your thoughts on this, John? I thought when I read the book, I could see the correlation to how we teach our military intelligence soldiers. Recognize the inter- interdependencies. Recognize patterns. Recognize relationships. That's a critical thinking function that takes time and effort and a lot of reflection. It's not something that you can just jam through and do properly. Exactly. We tend to see things through our foxhole, through our lens, through our experience. And then the ability to really pan out, take the balcony view, to try to see things holistically and how how different things affect other things before we make decisions. Or we've always been brought up to be conditioned to grease the squeaky wheel. When it comes to systems thinking, though, you have to kind of avoid the temptation to immediately grease the squeaky wheel because there could be some second or third order effects, unintended consequences. And when you're thinking uh, from an organizational leader standpoint, hang on, let me get the whole picture before I just start making snap judgments. If you imagine somebody trying to drive a battleship and, and making tiny inputs left, you know, instantly on the spur of the moment versus, I don't know, I see it more from an organizational leader's perspective of, We've now graduated from driving a Miata to driving the battleship. (laughs) And we have to be comfortable with delayed feedback in our decisions. We may make an input or a decision, and it may be a while before we get feedback or see the results of of that decision. Similarly to to driving a a battleship where it can take miles to to completely turn it around or to stop it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know my aperture goes straight towards the science part, not the art part of of the argument. I want to say, show me the checklist. Let me see if the processes are being followed. Are the right people being acknowledged? When perhaps, like you allude to, it's time to look at the art. Uh, Let's watch the process in progress. What are those things that uh, the science part, the checklist, can't tell us that the art can? I will observe. 
What am I seeing? You know, where where are the, you know, many organizations have natural friction. There's going to be a natural friction between many organizational departments just based on the nature of their job description. For example, how often do you see the S2 or your your security people have a natural rub with the S6 or communications people. Both want to serve the commander well, but both have different apertures to look through to deliver. Your security person is going to be looking at your signal person and giving a lot of restrictions, and the signal person is going to say, security people, you need to get out of our way. And that's just one example. I mean, operations logistics, there's going to be natural friction. FBI and CIA, there's natural friction. The FBI wants to arrest everybody in sight, and the CIA wants to follow everybody ad nauseum and arrest the big guys, not just arrest the little fish. So natural friction there that you have to overcome and, con- and consider, and that's, that's part of the system's thinking. Step back and be a leader and embrace the art side. Look for the patterns. Look for the relationships. Look at the interdependencies. And go from there. Maybe your checklist is fine. Maybe your process is fine. But there are outside influences that you can change or influence or check or change. Let's talk about those. And There's six that we can talk about specifically from FM 622. And these by all means aren't the only six. But let's just start with these six from FM 622 that leaders can do to help foster a learning environment. And let's talk about the first one. Encourage development. It seems so simple. What happens in the real world, though? Where does the tension, where does the friction happen? It's, oh, my goodness, I have to send you to a course for for four weeks? Who's going to do your job while while you're gone? Or the thought of, if I get you so qualified that you're going to leave this organization and go somewhere else. Absolutely. Those are natural fears, and they're not necessarily the wrong things to fear. Those are very legitimate fears, in my opinion. However... We also have to remember it's not about us and it's not just about our organization. It's about grooming these people for new and bigger and better things within the, within the army, within the army civilian corps. And just be aware that yes, you you are stifling the learning environment when you take those stances, but I completely understand the, the, the mindset. Well, the second one, encourage learning. Yeah. Encourage learning. Again, this comes back to the risk thing or how am I going to respond when someone makes a mistake? Absolutely. Do I allow people to make mistakes or do I maintain such a high level of control that I can mitigate risk and, but I stifle, I stifle learning. That reminds me of what the new army chief of staff said in his opening remarks when he took the job, something to the effect of, you know, zero defects isn't going to work for us. It may work during a garrison army time, but not in time of war. We have to give people the flexibility and latitude to try and, let them fail and not let them be a failure because of their failures, but have the grace to build these folks back up and uh, put them on the right path. That's the only way we're going to learn and develop a professional learning army. Let's talk about another one, encouraging innovation. Well, you had mentioned thinking outside the box. I think it's another term that kind of gets overused or can oh. jargoning, but uh, encouraging innovation, something new. Whenever you say, but this is the way we've always done it, you are stifling innovation. Absolutely. But, John, this is what's always worked. Why? If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Some believe that hook, line, and sinker. If it's not broke, don't fix it. But this is a very dangerous and bad course of action. 
you know, if we don't challenge the status quo, we'd still be stuck with rotary phones. That's true. Know? There was nothing wrong with rotary phones, right? They, they worked. They worked great. Yeah. Or life without computers. Did we really need computers? Uh, 20 years ago, I would have said, yeah, sure. Why not? It's easy. I don't need computers. Now, I doubt I could get through any single day at home or at work without a computer. Let's talk about allowing for risk-taking and encouraging exercise of discipline initiative. So that comes right back to Mission Command again. So, some of these are, are tied together to the, the promoting learning from mistakes and allowing for risk-taking to encourage exercise of discipline initiative. John, what does discipline initiative mean to you? It means I can take small risk within the confines of the commander's intent to meet the commander's desired end state. That doesn't mean I'm going to make foolish or reckless or dangerous decisions, but some risk at times is very appropriate. If I do the right risk analysis and I have the right safeguards in place, yeah, I should take discipline initiative. I should do the things that move forward that are within the commander's intent, the commander's key task, and the commander's desired end state. And I shouldn't be afraid of that. I should have the courage to go forward and do those things. This last bullet here from FM622, encourage effective decision-making. Encourage effective decision-making. That sounds so broad to me. What do they mean by that? Well, I think it depends on the context. Sure. We talked about Army Design Methodology a couple of podcast episodes ago. So when we're talking something with high stakes or something that's ill-structured or we don't understand, our effective decision-making is probably going to come through a lot of time spent in trying to understand what the issue or the challenges are versus should we take that hill right now or not? If the conditions have changed based on what the mission was 24 hours ago, do I have the freedom of maneuver to exercise discipline initiative? Uh, that's a decision-making process too, being decisive in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Otto, what, are your, what else are your thoughts that surround encouraging effective decision-making? How do I do that as a leader if I'm trying to develop subordinates to be more effective decision-makers? Well, for starters is model the behavior you want to see in others. If a commander or a formal leader is not taking full advantage of leveraging his staff to look at things, ideas, and ways forward instead of just going with his or her gut, then that's probably the wrong way to go. The more you can get your staff involved and leverage your staff to come up with some of these ideas, I don't know, maybe using the Army decision-making process, there's ways out there that you want to leverage your staff. And the more you do it, then they'll be sure to do it with their subordinates. There's one last thing I want to address, and it, I may have to edit it out because it's kind of me getting on my soapbox, I think. It's not one of the five disciplines, but I see it as stifling the Army as being a learning organization. And that is what I perceive to be a crisis of knowledge management. I perceive that we have a crisis, that there is so much knowledge throughout there, throughout organizations, and with the Army being the big beast that it is, to capture that, to be able to find it, though. It's certainly a shame if a unit out there makes a mistake and has to pay for it. And because another unit isn't aware of that or isn't able to to apply the, the lessons learned from, from others who have made the same mistake, that we have to then relearn it in, in, in one of our own organizations. And I don't know what the answer to that problem is. That is certainly, I think, ill-structured. I know we've got knowledge management procedures and and techniques we talk about you know sharepoint med i think it's so much more than that. i think okay, yes that's great i think though we need to encourage the army as a whole culturally to integrate that into our culture into where we share information and of course on the right 
platform depending on its classification level and such. But information should be much more readily available. But a lot of it, I think, comes from our unwillingness to share it, whether it's whether it's we just don't perceive we have the time or that we perceive that's relevant or I have no idea where I would share such information. I don't know. Do you, what are your thoughts? Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just James on a soapbox. But do you perceive that we have an issue with knowledge management across the Army? I think we've always had an issue with knowledge management. And I think we, we may always have a problem with knowledge management, but I don't think we're alone. And I don't think it's, I agree that there are times when it's people don't want to share information. I've seen that. I've experienced it. Very frustrating. But look back. I mean, back in the day, we used something called joint universal lessons learned. And there was supposed to be a big repository we would all go to. Chillis, joint lessons learned information system. Yes. And we've tried a lot of stuff. I mean, Remember 2007, 2008, there was a site where you could, that was putting out intel for the day about IEDs behind Saddam signs and things like this, and don't pull them because there's a trigger. There was, we've tried several things, but nothing really stays with this long term. We have call, the Center for Army Lessons Learned. We have a lot of initiatives, but I'm not sure. I've ever seen the one overarching concept that's going to get us to where we we can share knowledge on a big universal level like I wish we could because you're right. The Army is this huge, beleaguered bureaucracy that's – there's a lot of layers and it's tough to get timely information and we have secret, we have FOUO, we have a lot of different designations and it's tough. It's tough and everybody has the right – good ideas. There is always security concerns. There always will be who are released to concerns because we got to keep soldiers safe. But it is a tough, tough issue. Yeah. If anybody out there listening to this has some ideas on how we can shape the culture, and and I'm more interested in, in how we get the message or how we try to shape the culture I think we have a lot of the systems already in place, but I just don't think we use them effectively. I think it's right now more of a cultural issue, but maybe I'm wrong. And if there's anybody out there that has some feedback or has some ideas or would like to help us host a podcast on how we could better the Army when it comes to managing knowledge or sharing knowledge, by all means, hit us up. Absolutely. And I think we do a less than adequate job on making those resources known to everybody in the Army and how to leverage them and why they're valuable and you know a lot of it's just communication a communication fault a lot of it's captured in ar 11-33 which call the center for army lessons learned is the proponent for jillis as you had mentioned joint lessons learned information system jillis.mil there's a nipper and a sipper version of it but it, it i'll admit it's not as friendly to use as google when it comes to searching and digging up things but it also depends on how the information was uploaded too whether it was the right metadata and stuff assigned to it um, again, we're open to ideas. Let's put out these ideas. Let's help influence the culture. Maybe we can encourage the entire army to be to have more of a culture of learning. That really kind of encapsulates what we need. We need something that's as dead easy as Google to use and that would bring up information as quickly and as efficiently as Google. We'll stay tuned. We'll see if anybody responds to this. And thank you, John, for joining me in this episode. Yes, thank you. It's great. 